Welcome to MFM Speaks Out. This is the official podcast of the not-for-profit advocacy organization founded and led by Sarab Sadat Lejavardi called Musicians for Musicians. This podcast is co-hosted by MFM members and composers Daoud Kringle and myself, Adam Reifsteck. MFM seeks to bring together musicians from all disciplines, styles, traditions, and localities in the cause of their mutual self-betterment. Whether through education, networking, or political action, MFM's ultimate goal is to elevate the work of all musicians to the level of a true profession. We encourage you to get involved by using the hashtags on social media, Unity in the Music Community, and Making Music is a Profession. We encourage you to visit musiciansformusicians.org to sign up and join our organization, or if you would like to become a supporter, please go to our website as well. In this episode, I'm interviewing Broadway music director and pianist Geraldine Anello. She has conducted Kinky Boots and School of Rock on Broadway, The Fantastics off-Broadway, and played in the orchestras of Broadway's School of Rock, Bronx Tale, Aladdin, and On the Town. Geraldine has also served as music director of We Are the Tigers off-Broadway and of Renaissance for the Transport Group, as well as Finian's Rainbow at the Irish Repertory Theater and Children of Salt at the New York Musical Festival. Let's kick things off by listening to an excerpt of Fragmented Fractals that features Geraldine on piano as well as Roberta Michelle on flute.
welcome Geraldine. Thanks for joining the MFM podcast today. Thanks for having me, Adam. I'm super excited. Well, I'm glad you could join us today. So you've had a varied career as a conductor, collaborative pianist, and author, and a music director. So could you give us a bird's eye view of your journey in music and kind of how you ended up with this multifaceted career? Yeah, I mean, you know, I read just last week, somebody posted on one of the you know social media and said, if you did what you wanted to do when you were a child, what would you be doing? And I said, exactly what I'm doing now. Because <laughs> literally everything I do is what I used to do as a child. Like if I look back when I was six years old, I was writing books, I was playing piano, I was doing some kind of entrepreneurship project, whether it was like I created a magazine at school that I would just sell for like 10 cents or whatever. Mm. Like I just always was doing all those things. And I think a lot of people think of it as like, oh, I didn't know you did this and you also do this and you also do that. And they think of it as like, it looks very different. But to me, it's the same thing. Everything I do start from a creative impulse. Mm. So I'm, I'm a creative, you know what I mean? Whether my, and, and an artist, so whether it comes from, you know, it, my, my artistic spirit is going to shine through playing the piano or writing poems or creating a business it's all coming from that impulse of wanting to bring something into the world from a place of like art and creation, if that makes sense. So yeah, a little bit about your background here. I actually first met you in, uh, I think it was 2006 when we were both at uh, Western Michigan University. Uh, but before that, you had moved to the United States, not speaking any English. And uh, what kind of prompted that move? And what it was it kind of that that dream to eventually be on Broadway as a musician or did you always want to come to the United States growing up or or, or how, how did you decide on this was kind of the path you wanted to go? I had no particular intention of going to the U.S. I never really thought of it as an option, you know, I mean, mm. there was not really a lot of internet at the time. So you didn't have that kind of worldwide spirits that I think people who have grown up with technology can have nowadays. Mm. And so, you know, I was in France and I was, I really just knew what was in front of me in my town and what was there and what the people around me knew. I didn't have access to anything else outside of it. So I knew I loved story. I knew I loved music. I was interested in theater, even though I couldn't do it because I was doing uh, music. And, but I, I already had started in high school to put them together by myself with my own impulse. Uh, but I did not know it was a job. I did not know, you know, we didn't have musicals in France in school like there is in the U.S. of like, you know, middle school musical and high school musical. We didn't mm. have those things. That wasn't part of the curriculum. That wasn't an option. There was not a place that had amateur musical theater in town. There was no such thing. So I just didn't know it existed. I kind of saw some like VHS tape of like Cats, I think, and maybe one of Les Mis not even Les Miserables, actually, that's not even true. So, I mean, I remember I saw Cats and I thought the rock cat was very sexy, uh -huh. who I ended up working with a couple of years ago, by the way. And I was like, that was you, like my teenage, like hot moment. <laughs> but um, that's all I knew. So I, I definitely had no idea that Broadway was my goal because I did not know about Broadway mm -hmm. and I did not know about musical theater. But yeah, as far as how I made my journey to the US, it was a complete what I like to think of as a fate moment, fate, mm. you know, shined down at me and said, you're going to go because the, the vice president of the conservatory I was at one day completely randomly came to me and said, can I speak to you in my office? I thought I was in trouble because I used the conservatory used to open at 9am 
and I would show up at 8 a.m. and asking the clinic personnel to let me practice early. And I was like, oh no, he found out I'm in deep trouble because I've been <laughs> practicing too early. And in hindsight, as an adult, I can see how that would not have gotten me in trouble, but I really thought I was. And uh-huh. he sat me down and I was terrified. And he goes, so do you remember how last year we offered a scholarship for one of our students to go to Kalamazoo College in Kalamazoo, Michigan? And we ran a contest for someone who'd want to do it. And I said, I do remember that. I had not applied. And he said, well, we picked someone and they ended up not going last minute. So this year we decided we would like to give it to someone we believe is deserving and would represent us well. And we think that person is you. And the minute he said that in my head, I was gone. I knew it was the right thing for me to do. Like instantly. Mm. I left that meeting. I called my mother. I said, mom, I'm taking you out to this restaurant so we can celebrate. I'm going to the U.S. And she was like, wait, what? What? What's happening? <laughs> I just knew in my heart it was the right thing. And so it was nine months exchange student at Kalamazoo College in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And, and that was it. That's how it happened. Fate. Fate really did it for me. I was very lucky. So you ended up just deciding to stay at that point, too. Normally, if you're in an exchange program, you know, you kind of just go for the nine months and then you go back. Uh, what was it that particularly about that experience that uh, prompted you to stay and and keep you know keep developing your your career here in the United States yeah well the first semester it was a trimester system the first trimester I didn't really think about it then it was um, I think the, the the holidays so I went back to France but I had a wonderful wonderful piano teacher dr. Tong whom I adore and I'm still very much in touch with mm-hmm. Um, and he really took me under his wing and did so much for me during that time of my life. And what he did, he was like, you know, you could apply to schools here in the U.S. and do a degree. And I did not know what degrees were. The, the French system was very different at the time. It's similar now, but at the time it wasn't. And all I knew is that if I went back to France, my options were either the conservatory, which was very, very classical and playing, but very classically oriented, or the university for music which was fully theory and history and not no playing and neither of those worked because i knew i wanted to do something more about groove and stuff like that and and so it seemed like what i saw in the universities in kalamazoo college and i already was starting to have a foot at western michigan university next door in like their musical theater department they started realizing i could do what they needed me to do and so it felt like there was more enough in universities in the U.S. that were more open to both history and musicology and, and theory and um, also playing grooves and playing classical and all of that at the same time. And I liked that, like, all-encompassing kind of environment. And so Dr. Tong said, you know, you can apply. And he really kind of held my hand through the process, which I didn't know what that process was like of applying to school. We didn't have to do that in France. So he, you know, helped me pick out schools and how to send the application, what pieces to play, how to do all of that. And so I ended up being accepted at Western Michigan University with an assistantship, which really made it possible as, a, as an immigrant, really, because I couldn't apply to, you know, federal loans or things like that. So I, I really, you know, that time of my life, would, I, I'm so grateful for all the people involved that helped me, because without them, it would not have turned out that way at all. So that that's what happened. Yeah. So to that end, and I guess in terms of it's really the, you know, the sense, I guess, is as an immigrant, the kind of the uh, American dream in a way and finding the mentors and kind of pursuing, 
your passion here and it being a place for that. So fast forward, uh, you know, you um, went to Boston College and and got your doctorate degree in in collaborative piano. And so from there, you, you, you know, came to Broadway and uh, uh, you started working as a pianist and then um, as a as a music director. So in that time, so almost a decade, how, how would you see if the Broadway community has kind of evolved in that in that time frame? Yeah, it's very interesting because I hadn't realized, you know, from the outside, it looks like Broadway is Broadway. It's this right. kind of like institution. But when you're in the midst of it, it's a very alive, very contemporary, very changing. Um, I don't even know what to call it. It's not an institution. It's like mm. it's art. It's very alive. And so that means that everything changes. You know, the personnel is a big one because we're artists working on projects. And so you'll come in a city and you'll get to know these are the key players. These are the important people. Here are the people trying to make it. Then five years later, it's a complete shift around. I mean, there's a reason we call it musical chairs and not like corporate chairs. Yeah. It's because <laughs> the actual turnaround of the musical chairs game is kind of similar to the turnaround of the, the Broadway personnel. That's for everybody, mm. right? There are still people that always stay, but you don't always stay in the same positions. It depends on the show. Um, so that's one aspect of it is that the actual like people around you are always up and down at all times, you included. And that keeps it very fresh and everybody working really well together also because you know that one day you're the boss of somebody that next day will be your boss. And that keeps everyone um, humble and kind and full of gratitude towards each other. Um, the other thing is like everything that is show business, there are trends, you know, and like uh, there are trends in Hollywood, there are trends on Broadway of like what sort of topics um, are shows currently bringing. We always come back to, you know, the fact that um, there are years that where there are more movies musicals that are made out of movies than other years. And, you know, there's always people complaining that we want more um, stories made from scratch because a lot of writers are working on those and they tend to not be produced as often as as musicals made from movies that have already a track record for obvious reasons. So, you know, you'll see trend, you know, there was the trend of a lot of um, children musicals and then there was some about, um, you know, there's going to be more like intimate, folky actor playing instruments, things like that um, over years you can see. So it's kind of uh, interesting to be a part of that. And I think a lot of it too is that sometimes you'll find a year that has a lot of similar shows that come at once. But meanwhile, it takes years for a show to be, to get to that stage. So it's like all those shows were working independently from each other. No one knew they would hit at the same time. And now you have a trend where nobody followed each other. Everybody created at the same time and hit it at the same time. And now it looks like everybody's doing the same as everybody, but actually everybody did something different at the time they created it. It just hit at the same time and appears that way now, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And it, it kind of sounds like you have to be a very versatile and as a musician and really on your toes and sort of follow, you know, what's what's happening in, in order to stay competitive and uh, get work, I guess, you know, you can't really, would you say you can't really focus on one particular style of, of music? You kind of have to be somebody that is a jack of all trades. I mean, definitely grooves for mm-hmm. for Broadway is the most important. You have to be able to play grooves. You are going to find exceptions. There's definitely co- some people that are coming from classical that are pure classical, but you have less musicals that really come from a classical um, history. And so to have a career where you only play classically inclined musical theater 
um, is going to be harder than if you're able to do classical and grooves. Uh, grooves, there's always more musical theater that is groove based. Now within grooves, that's also very specific and you have to be versatile within like what kind of groups, grooves can you do? And when I say grooves, I'm not even including jazz, even though obviously it's very groovy, but like the people that can do jazz, they're in their own category outside of groove because they have skills that not necessarily a lot of people have on Broadway, the ability to really improvise at a very high level and just the kind of like jazz touch and, you know, beat placement and things like that, like being in the pocket for different stuff, but within grooves of like pop, pop, rock, Latin, uh, gospel, R&B, like it gets so, so specific for every single style. And you have to be versatile because if you look at any musical theater pieces, like three hours long in most cases or two and a half, and within each, they'll usually have you know, a different style for different characters. So like this character is the comedic relief will come with some kind of like samba and like, or like tango. And then the, the lead will always have some kind of, uh, you know, maybe a pop ballad. And then the villain is going to come with a mean rock song. And so you kind of have to have that versatility within groups already. And then maybe you're going to have, you know, the, uh, an older character is going to come and that's going to be a waltz and that's going to be classical. So just for the storytelling, we have a variety of style within one piece of musical theater. So even if it's just for a couple bars, you better nail those couple bars of that one style. You know, Lion King is a very good one at that and they do a lot of world music. So that's a whole other thing, but it's fascinating. I think that's what makes Broadway so interesting as a musician personally. Mm, for sure. So in addition to, you know, working as a music director and, um, you know, pianist on Broadway. Uh, you are also a, a writer as well. So you're working on a book right now about, uh, you know, the a series of interviews with uh, A-list musicians and talking about their experience. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that project and sort of how, how it came about and, and uh, you know, who are the some of the people that you, you've interviewed? This is truly an insider's guide to the music industry. So for anyone who's a musician looking at having a career in music, this book is the one-stop shop that will give you answers such as, you know, what is life on tour at the highest level? What is mm -hmm. life as a Broadway musician? What is life as a, um, you know, military musician, met opera musician? You know, they're very different lives and, um, and there's different avenues as a musician. And I think we're not always told what the implications are of what, um, street we go down, what path we go down on. And this book, reading the story of these people that were all, you know, I, I chose purposefully people that had decades of experience at a high level of anything from classical to military to A-listers, tours, TV, Hollywood, you know, session musicians. And, um, you know, they play for the top of the top. Taylor Swift, uh, Blake Sheldon, American Idol, of course, you know, Broadway, and just the top of the top um, of, across all genres of music. And so talking with all these people, you really can see, A, what is the commonality between all musicians uh, who have done it professionally at the highest level across time, but also what different lifestyles there are, uh, depending on what kind of music you play and what kind of gigs you go down. You know, some provide security, um, some are, you know, gig to gig and some are year to year and some are, you know, in front of 500,000 people and some are sessions and you have no, you never play live as a performer. All you do is record it. So, and they have different challenges and it's so interesting. I mean, like those conversations are so many stories and I, I just really enjoyed working on it and I can't wait to see the kind of impact it can have on people's choice of careers. For sure. So you touched on, you know, there was a kind of like a thread of commonality with those that are working at the top of the game. What would you say is kind of that common 
thread? I think the, the, the one thing I, I talk about that I love so much is the fact that there's this idea when we're young musicians looking at maybe one day being at the top, as if being at the top is going to be this, this proof that you're good. Like, oh, once I make it to the top, I will know I'm good enough and the world will know I'm good enough because now that I was chosen to be at the top, then it, it proves something to me and to the world. And actually what happens is a little bit of the opposite because when you get to the top, you're seen by that many more people. The stakes are that much higher. The feedback you're getting is that much more specific. And so actually you, it, it's very much a reality check. It's very much like, oh, I've got to improve this, 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 and that. <laughs> and so while you would think that getting to the top gives you more confidence in many ways, it also keeps you very humble and striving for more. And you never have that feeling of like, oh, I'm so good which like, I think you would think you would have when you're like a younger one looking at the people at the top. Like They must feel like they're so good and they're just having fun. No, they're working really hard and they're always striving and they can tell you the one thing that was missed in that three-hour concert in front of 500,000 people. They'll be like, ooh, that one you know, release that was not perfect. You know, they, have a tr- they keep track of that at all times. I thought the questions that you were asking for this book were, were super interesting. So I kind of want to maybe turn the tables a little bit on on you and kind of ask you some of these questions too. Um, one in particular I thought was interesting was how can you tell if you're persevering or if you're stuck? That's one of those really tricky pieces of advice because everybody always says, you know, you got to persevere. And mm. I've seen people over years that think they're persevering. But meanwhile, from the outside looking in, you're like, oh, they're a little bit stuck. They just don't realize it. Mm. And the, the main thing is that your overall course should be going up. And when I say overall, it's very important because a music career or freelance, or it's always going to have ups and downs. So you cannot be like, oh, I'm down right now. It means I'm going downhill and I've lost my momentum. The down, whether it's financial or the level of gig, or maybe you don't have work for a week or two, Whatever it is, that's normal and that's to be expected. But when you look at like the year past, what, whatever better means to you at that moment, is it that maybe you worked with higher level artists? Is it that you made more money? Is it that you had a better quality of life because you were able to take higher quality gigs and have more time at home? Whatever better means to you, or are you just getting closer to your goal? Uh, obviously, now with the pandemic, it's, uh, it doesn't count. So don't count 2020 or pro- probably 2021 as the year. But if you compare 2019, to 2018, was it better? If you compare 2018 to 2017, was it better? And as long as it is, then you're you're not stuck. You are persevering and you are making headways. You know, it's like, a, keep chipping at it, you know? <laughs> are there rocks around you to prove you're chipping at it constantly? But now if you have two, three years that are similar, uh, as if you're happy with it, then fantastic, keep it up. But if you've been frustrating and growing frustrated, then you need to do something about it. Now you're a little bit stuck and, you know, something needs to shift a little bit so you can move ahead. Yeah. And, and to that end, I think, um, you know, it comes a point in your career where you need to learn the, the power of saying no. Um, cause a lot of times as working musicians, we want to take, take the gigs cause we, you know, we need, need to work and, um, you know, we hope maybe it's going to lead to something else. So, uh, one of the other questions that you asked the people that you're interviewing for this book, and I wanted to a- ask the question to you is like, how do you tell if an opportunity is, is a complete waste of time or something that, uh, you should, should be doing or just something you should say no. <laughs> 
So I think when you're getting started, you should say yes. I mean, when you're getting started, anything that is thrown your way, say yes. And I've seen people at 22, just graduated college that will say, no, I can't because I'm invited to my cousin's wedding. Listen, good for you. You're invited to your cousin's wedding. Yes, it's good to be there at family functions. But if you're going to be a musician, you're going to miss a lot of family function. If you're not already ready for that, just go to another career because that's just the life. You know, you're going to miss things. Um, But you should say yes to everything at the beginning. You get to start saying no when you're making a living and you're getting more calls in than you can take, right? It's like, okay, now you're getting called for two, three, four, five things on the same day. You get to start saying no, not just because you can't, but because now you're getting called regularly enough that you can say no to something even when you don't have something else. Maybe you just want to you know, have like an hour downtime. Uh, but when you're getting started the first few years, you should absolutely say yes to everything. After that, when you start having, um, you know, people know you and you're getting regular calls, then I really rely on, there's this one second and you have to be ready for it when it comes. There's always this one second when you read the email or the text that just came your way that says, hey, are you available to do da-da-da-da-da? That very first second where you're like, uh, uh, I guess, I guess I'm free that day. Or you're like, oh, yes, this person, that gig, awesome. And that split second impulse before your mind chimes in and says, well, you know, we really need the money. Well, we, you know, don't have a reason to say no. So I guess we should, or, oh, I owe them, you know, whatever like rationalization you're going to have with yourself to say yes to a gig you actually don't want to do. Trusting that split second impulse and instinct is a very good guide. It's a very, very, very good guide. So you brought a few pieces uh, for us to listen to of projects that you've worked on. Uh, the first one of was one of my pieces and super exciting that uh, you were able to premiere that work a few years ago in New York here. So the, this next one, could you tell us a little, little bit about this one? Yeah, well, your piece, I mean, Fragmented Fractal, I loved working on it. And that is such a great piece. And, you know, I've been, I've been a fan of your compositions for so long. So it was such a treat for me to do it. We performed it. I remember in a very cool venue in uh, downtown New York. And then we yeah. got to record it in like a, an amazing state-of-the-art studio with a wonderful engineer and technician. And so it was such a treat. It was such a fantastic day. Uh, and it's such a great piece. So thank you for having me on board for that. Um, and the next piece is from We Are the Tigers, which was an awesome off-Broadway show. I got to music direct a couple of years ago. Um, very pop rock. It was a spoof of horror movies. So we mm. had the audience every night scream in their seats with all the, you know, all the fake blood that was being splattered all over. Um, and I'm, let's, let's be clear, I'm very scared of horror movies. I've never actually watched one in my life. So even watching <laughs> them practice the choreography um, on stage with no effects and no blood, just seeing them do that, sometimes I would scream. Like, I wouldn't know it's coming and I would scream. Like, it's just terrible. <laughs> but it was so fun. And we had an incredible cast made of amazing Broadway actors. Um, and this song is, is the end of act one. It's kind of a, a duel between the two leading characters. And it was just, we were a four-piece band, you know, very groovy, very pop rock, full of, you know, teenage angst. Um, it was so fun to work on that show. And I love that cast album. It really replicates what we were doing um, on the stage every day. And I, and I do hope it, it gets produced other places and that I get to do it again, because I really love that show and working on that show and that whole team. Nobody remembers fourth grade 
Riley. She is harmless and shy and will never speak up cause she's scared to be wrong. Riley is a wallflower, the type of little kid who gets paralyzed with fear when she gets called on. But who had your back when you had a heart attack? Cause the kids would start to laugh when you developing your career as a Broadway musician and music director, you got involved and started this uh, theater music directors group. You started hosting uh, workshops. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about that project and how that how that came about? Yeah, so I started as a music blogger. I had a blog and I used to write a lot about music teaching and performing and lots of thoughts. And so in the bloggers world, this was, you know, back in maybe 2009, 2010, you connected with other bloggers. So I knew a lot of other music bloggers. And one of them was Dave Han, who had this website at the time called Musician Wages. He had started, he was living in New York. He was a music director um, who at the time was not yet on Broadway, but was going to end up on Broadway. And he had created theater music directors, a community group. Uh, and it was not really moving, not much. And at about 200 members, he said to me, hey, I don't really... Um, have time to do this. Nothing is going on with it. I don't think it's taking uh, roots. So I'm going to close it unless you're interested in taking it. I saw that if this worked, it would be very um, a very good thing for the community and long-term. 
And so I spent a lot of time in the early years adding people one by one, and it took such a long time to get it going. But by the time it started and got going, it was really helpful because it really created a, a community across not only the U.S., but at this point really worldwide of the standard for music directing, uh, a place for questions. And, you know, now I see people who are 20, who gra- 22 who graduate, and they've had this resource their entire life like wanting to go into this field and they have access that we didn't have at the time they have knowledge we didn't have at the time and i mean that whole community and the workshops is truly what i wish i had when i was getting started you know i mean people can be in australia and learn from a broadway conductor like does it get any better than that i mean i'm still like a little fan girl thinking that's the coolest thing and you know i get to hire my own (laughs) colleagues but i'm just like what kind of incredible world that is and i talk to people and and they, you know, when they are 22 or 25, they don't realize that this wasn't always there because they've always had it. <laughs> and so they ask me questions like, how did you practice at 20 for musical theater and grooves? Because it's so important. I'm like, I didn't know. I did not know how to play grooves when I was 20 because n- there was no such thing as this resource to tell me I needed to know how to do that. And so I'm very, very proud of that. It really changed a lot of things in the music directing field. And, and it's helped a lot of people break in the field and on Broadway. And, and I love that. Yeah, that's excellent. And it's something that we do at the musicians for musicians and our president. So Rob, uh, mentioned, uh, mentions a lot of, of this, the slogan unity in the music community. And I think, uh, that the more we can come together as a community and support each other and, and help, you know, uh, you know, whether it be for rights advocacy or, um, with MFM or with, uh, the group that you started, uh, to, for developing careers, I think it's super important and, uh, and it's, uh, yeah, super fascinating on how, how communities sort of come together and, and, uh, how we need to support each other. So I'd like to kind of address the elephant in the room here. Uh, there aren't a lot of women on Broadway as music directors. So could you kind of tell us a little bit about the challenges that you've faced as uh, as both an immigrant and a woman? Why do you think the theater music industry struggles with gender e- equality? I mean, I think it's uh, it's it's not a Broadway problem. It's a world problem, right? Mm. It, it's across right. the world in all countries and in all fields. It's it's a thing. I mean, there is gender discrimination. So that it is in the world. And as a result, it is in Broadway. I think, you know, it, it is hard because I, it while it is an issue, I have been given so many chances by wonderful men and I've never had to face any kind of like weird comments or weird. I mean, sometimes, of course, you get the usual, you know, like I'll go into recording sessions as the music director and I'll look at my avion to set my levels and I'll have the technician come to me and say, do you want me to explain to you how this works? I'm like, I'm the music director. Like, of course I know how this works. You know, like, why would <laughs> right. you assume I wouldn't know this? And like, the same will happen. You know, they would not ask that question to a man or the same, you know, like I'll go into a Broadway pit and I'll go to practice on the gear. And I often have had somebody come and say, do you want me to explain to you how to use this? Like, I'm a professional keyboard player. I know how to use this keyboard. (laughs) But, you know, it, 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 you know, so those are, those are things that you encounter. But I mean, it's not like, you know, I've faced, you know, like actual harassment or things like that. Thankfully, I've been surrounded by wonderful male colleagues that I respect and love and who I feel also respect and love me back. So in the daily it's just been a great environment to work in. There's something to be said for the fact that we have a wonderful union 
And then mm. that union sets prices for the musicians. So like on Broadway, as a musician, you get paid the same no matter your gender because you get paid by how many instruments you play and you get paid by, um, uh, you know, by service. Like, was it a Sunday afternoon or Sunday night? And, and was it a show? And then you get paid the same. So on that level, at least we don't have pay discrimination. Now that's for a musician track. As a music director, it is very, very clear that there is more chances given to men. But I think, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of the book Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg. And she said, men, and that's across all fields, it's been proven that men are hired for their potential and women are hired for their experience. So what I've noticed in all the amazing women I know working as music director and music director types on, on Broadway and off Broadway is that it, it, it comes down to age. You'll have men be given big jobs between you know, the ages of 28 and 32, while most women will be given chances around 35 to 45 when they are. And so, of course, that sets you up for kind of the rest of your career because everything is delayed by a lot of years. And you have to prove your marks much more. So you'll have women on Broadway who have been incredible subs, who have proven themselves time and time again, who don't really seem to be given chairs as quickly. But now that said, it's been really changing. There's been a lot of movements in the effect to help uh, that. So in the past few years, it's very much, there's been more women on Broadway hired. A lot of young, it's, it's oddly enough, it's really helped the very young women. Like there's been a lot more of like 22, 23, 24 year old hired uh, and it seems like it hasn't yet caught up to like the 45 year old women that have been working in the trenches who really deserve their break. And somehow it's like bypassing them because there is some ageism too on Broadway for both genders now. Um, so, I mean, you know, those are very complex issues and it takes time, but um, it's been, you know, improving. Um, and so we shall see where it lands in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years. So we have this thing that's, uh, you know, going on right now, uh, called a pandemic <laughs> and, uh, you know, Broadway has, you know, been shut down for, well, you know, a year, over a year now. How has this affected you as a working musician and, and what have you done to manage to stay afloat? Yeah. I mean, like all musicians, you know, on March 13th, I lost every single gig I had, like mm. from one day to the next, I saw my months of work ahead of me and I had a solid six, seven months of work just completely disappear in front of my eyes. And so it's like, well, I live in New York City. It is not a cheap city. Um, I mean, thankfully, and, um, you know, there was unemployment, which I was able to benefit from, uh, which I'm very grateful for, because, you know, not everybody had that opportunity. And so I, I, I'm very grateful for the unemployment I was able to collect. Um, after a while, I ended up going to France to go to my family, you know, not have rent to pay. Um, but you know, it's been like every, every musician, you really try your best to figure ways, but it's, uh, you know, to say it's been easy would be, would be lying. Um, in another side of it, like a lot of artists I know, it's also been an opportunity to finish longer term projects that had been, you know, that were not urgent, uh, that had been put to the side because music is, you know, there's so much work in music, you're always working. So, you know, for me, the thing that's been great is I've been able to explore a lot of other things I'm curious about and, um, and other fields I'm interested in. And in particular, really put in, you know, I had these poetry books that I had been working on for now four years. And I just published one last week and I'm publishing another one in a couple months. Uh, and I'm going to be publishing the music book, uh, The Insider's Guide to Music as well, probably this year. So it's just really nice to be able to like finally put, uh, you know, put these things to, you know, birth these things that, 
where long haul projects that you know I felt really passionate about and have the time to do it uh, in this weird time. So I'm excited I'm doing those and I'm excited for when it'll be time to open again and I get to make a, a living again because I can't say that I've gone back to my regular level of income by any shape of the imagination. So yeah, it, it's a blessing and a curse for sure. Yeah, for sure. And, and a lot of the musicians that we've been interviewing during this pandemic, it's been kind of kind of the same experience and where it, it's a blessing and a curse where you do have these other projects that you can finally, you know, um, spend time on and, and develop and explore new new opportunities. But at the same token, you know, we, we are out of work and uh, it's uh, challenging for sure. What in terms of navigating that whole experience with with the unemployment and then uh, payment protection and all this kind of stuff, you know, where did you go to kind of you know, how to kind of navigate. Cause we had uh, Keith Levinson on another episode. Oh, well, I was going to say Keith. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. just talked to Keith a week ago because I was confused with something with unemployment and we, he hopped on the phone and gave me answers. And that was yeah. he's just incredible and so helpful. So Keith is the answer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I figured as much. Yeah, for sure. Cause it's, uh, it is challenging trying to navigate uh, this whole system and, and it's, and it's not easy. So you did mention the book of poetry that you just released. So how did that come about and uh i didn't really you know i knew that you kind of wrote songs and stuff like that but i didn't really see you as a poet so uh, and it was and i did get a chance to read it and it's uh super fascinating so just curious and how that project came about and, and what prompted you to sort of you know release a book of poetry and you have some more coming right yes well thank you for the kind words and for reading yeah. it i really appreciate it it's called naked it is part of a three collection series and the name of the series is truth um the next one is coming out in a couple months i'm currently finishing it up it's called power so the current one is naked and has been a you know we launched last tuesday and it was number one bestseller in three categories number one new release for a couple weeks in five different categories so it's a it's doing well. I'm happy with it. And uh, yeah, I started writing poetry when I was a, you know, a teenager and I started, you know, lyrics for songs. And it's one of those things that as an artist, your creative impulse comes the way it comes. And I, I don't really, you know, I, I like to think of it as like, I'm a, I will follow where the muse takes me. I have no hmm. ego with that. You know, sure. <laughs> I can say that I thought of myself as a poet, but then meanwhile, I've been writing poetry my whole life. So there it is. Um, but yeah, I really, that really, it, it was an interesting process. It's so different from writing songs because I just wrote so many poems in a row. It was just like these, these moments of outpouring of just like dozens and dozens and dozens of poems in certain times of my life. But where the real work came in was not so much in the writing of it, but in the putting them in an order that made sense. And that took a long time. Like for Naked, it took a couple years of just playing with different versions of order because uh, otherwise, you know, it can be quite jarring with poetry if it doesn't kind of flow from one to the next. Um, and so that was the biggest discovery was the writing of poem was the easier part, but the putting it together. Oh, boy, <laughs> that was harder. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I'm really thrilled with, um, you know, my head currently is in power and it's already available for pre-order, too. And uh, I, I'm very excited for that one as well. So it's, it's just fun to, you know, see how art manifests itself through you. I mean, I like to think of myself as a, I just let art go through me. So I don't even feel like I have such a part of it. I'm just like, my job is to bring it to the world. The muse <laughs> is the one that puts it 
through me and now I must obey and give it to the world because it does not belong to me. <laughs> Very much a servant to my art is the way I like to think of it. Yeah, for sure. And and you sort of have kind of uh, seems like a thread for you is is that you just follow where opportunities present itself. And that that's something I think a lot of musicians can learn from in, in sort of between creating their own opportunities and and saying yes and and uh, following, you know, where where the path may may take them and not be you know, closed off to these different opportunities that present themselves. And so that's uh, super encouraging to hear. So uh, looking at in the future, what, what other projects uh, do you have on the horizon you, um, that you might want to share with the listeners? Well, publishing power is definitely the next big goal and keeping naked, you know, um, at the forefront <laughs> um, is it. And then definitely the insider's guide to the music industry is the next big one. So it's for 2021, it appears is a, the year of the books. Uh, <laughs> but after that, you listen, I've gotten a couple calls from Broadway about me playing in some pits in the fall. So I'm crossing my fingers, Broadway will open and that that will happen. Uh, if not this fall, hopefully next year in 2022, but I'm excited for that. And then I worked, I music directed a new show uh, that was made into a movie. And that should come out. Uh, we did that over a period of time between October and February. And that will come out, I believe, May 18th. It's called Lights on the Radio Tower. So I'm very excited. It's the first time uh, my work as a music director is on a movie. So I'm very excited to see how that turned out. And also, you know, hopefully, I believe they're thinking of having an off-Broadway run maybe at some point, which would be wonderful um, because that, that, that would be so great. It's a two-people piece. I love it. Very cool rock, grungy music. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely excited to get back to music performing being with my colleagues. I miss mm. my colleagues a lot. So it'll be nice. It'll be nice to have the chance to finish all the books uh, now because we're still not open yet on Broadway and it'll be exciting to get back. So I'm, I'm just grateful. Yeah. And, and speaking of Broadway opening, I think there's there's also talks of like, you know, maybe opening in the fall at, at 30% capacity, but then there's you know, there's challenges with that because then how can musicians be adequately compensated? But then we do have the union, but uh, uh, to to help help with that. But do you, you know, in terms of uh, getting out of this, how, how do you see is kind of the way forward um, in terms of opening back up and, and getting back to the way things were? I'm sure those are very difficult conversations between producers who have to, I mean, it's basics of business. You cannot mm. spend more than you're making. Otherwise you're just going to, you know, uh, crash and burn really, really, really fast. So of course, producers have a responsibility to the people they employ as well to make sure they don't crash and burn in the long run by rushing things in the short term. And the unions have a responsibility to make sure that people are paid what they um, you know, must be paid in a city like New York City in particular, but anywhere, you know, this is true of London. So, I mean, there are different interests and they all make sense separately and how do they join and collaborate is going to be very interesting. But what I'm really hopeful for is the fact that the U.S. has been extremely good with vaccines. You know, I mean, I'm originally mm -hmm. from France and France, nobody is vaccinated there right now. Nobody, nobody mm -hmm. I know, basically. I mean, a couple people maybe are vaccinated but in the U.S., everybody's vaccinated pretty much at this point. And in a month, everybody will be. So I think that is a big part of what will make it possible um, sooner rather than later at full capacity. <laughs> mm, for sure. 
So I want to uh, circle back to kind of like running your your business as a as a musician, because um, you you kind of made a career out of freelancing and stuff. And in, in you know, there's there's challenges in in there in terms of our government and being a self-employed, uh, you know, but I, I guess what I'm getting at is kind of how are you structuring your, your, your business, you know, cause, cause let's face it, we're, we're, we're basically operating our own businesses, you know, solo your Yeah. You must, you must have talked to my, uh, my accountant to whom I was talking <laughs> to this afternoon, as I discovered that I owe as much money for 2020 as I owed in 2019. And I was mm. like, how is that possible? I made yeah. way less money. And he said, the difference is because in 2019, I had so many W-2s. Mm, and yeah. so it, it lowered how much I owed. And last year I had no W-2. Um, and so that, that was the difference. And he also was saying that it is always more helpful for everyone to be working under a corporation um, mm. and that that is very helpful. And he also suggested that I move out of New York City, uh, that I can move to New Jersey or to Connecticut or to New York State, but then New York City adds on another 5% taxes on top of the rest of the taxes, mm. that as soon as you move out of the city itself, you'll remove 5% of taxes from what you owe. Um, so um, if anyone has a house or an apartment for sale near New York <laughs> City, uh, I am interested. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that, that, that's what I'm looking at in the middle to, to longer term is maybe uh, moving somewhere where it makes it, where it helps a little bit, right? Every bit helps and 5% is not an insignificant amount. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, knowing what those structures are and, and are you thinking about maybe, you know, starting like an, an S corp or something like that, or like restructuring, you know, how you're doing freelance? Yeah. I think for any musician working under an S corp is, uh, uh -huh. is probably more helpful than working as a, as a pure independent contractor. Mm, especially these, these day and ages. So for sure. Thanks again, uh, Geraldine, for joining us on the MFM podcast today. To close things out, uh, we have this uh, last excerpt um, of my cast album where you were the music director and pianist. And could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So this is an incredible piece from a new show that happened in, I believe, 2018. And it was called Renaissance. And the title was given by a famous, famous poem uh, by Edna St. Vincent Millay, who is one of the most famous American poets. And she wrote Renaissance, and that's the poem that got her to fame as a poet. And that poem was part of a poetry competition that she did not win, which made her so <laughs> famous because everybody believed she should have won. And it was a massive, epic, long, long poem. And it was, uh, all her poems were put into song form by composer Carmel Dean and put into a musical theater on the life of Edna St. Vincent Millay, all with her poetry for lyrics. And this, the end of the show, incredibly enough, is put to song an art version and dance version of the entirety of the poem Renaissance. So this entire piece is, you know, 15 minutes. I know here we're going to play an excerpt of it, but the full thing is 15 minutes and the whole audience got to have a complete change from watching the stage to being on stage, uh, part of the actions of the last 15 piece. It was kind of a separate piece within the whole musical theater show. It was so spectacular and so artistic. It won many awards. We have a full cast album. It was an, a, I believe, I forget now, but I think it was a nine-piece band uh, mm. by orchestrated by the incredible Tony Award winner, Michael Sterobin, who did, I mean, he's incredible to work with him in the room. He's amazing. It was 
truly just thinking about the fact that I got to do that in music directed with an amazing piano part. The top of the musicians of New York City were in that pit because they just all wanted to work uh, on Michael Sterbin's work and mm. Carmel Dean's compositions. And it's six people cast and they sang and danced for 15 straight minutes after having done a full show. And, and, and as you can, you'll hear, it's, it's uh, inspired from classical and from groove and, and it's just pure magic. I'm, I'm really in love with that piece and that cast, and that composer and those orchestrations and bands. Over these things I could not see These were the things that bounded me And I could touch them with my hand Almost I thought from where I stand And all at once things seemed so small My breath came short and scarce at all But sure, the sky is big, I said Miles and miles above my head So here After all, the sky was not so very tall. The sky, I said, must somewhere stop. And sure enough, I see the top. The sky, I thought, was not so grand. I most could touch it with my hand. And reaching up my hand to try, I screamed to feel it touch the sky. And back my arm upon my breast And pressing on the undefined The definition on my mind Held up before my eyes a glass Through which my shrinking sight did pass Until it seemed I must be all Immensity made manifold Whisper to me a word whose sound Deafened the air for worlds around And brought a muffled the gossiping of friendly stairs The creaking of the tented sky The ticking of eternity I saw and heard and knew at last The how and why of all things past And present and forevermore the universe cleft to the core Lay open to my probing sense That sickening I would fain pluck thence But could not, nay, but needs must suck at the great wound And could not pluck my lips away Till I had drawn a belt A fearful pawn for my omniscience Paid, I told, an infinite remorse of my sinning all atoning mine and mine the gall of all regret mine was the weight of every brooded wrong the hate that stood behind each envious thrust mine every greed mine every lust and all the while for every grief each suffering I craved relief with individual desire craved all in vain and felt fierce fire about a thousand people crawl A man was starving in comm- 
tuning in to MFM Speaks Out. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, and we'll see you next time.